All right. So I don't have to ring a bell because everyone seems to be hushing already. So uh, anyhow, we, we begin today a new course, which is kind of an old course, but it's a new course for us because I'm taking a little bit of a different tack. Uh, I'm entitling this course The Leaven of Liturgy. You'll find, more out, uh, find out more about what I mean by that in just a moment. But we will be covering uh, the order for the administration of the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion in your prayer books starting on page 67 and onwards, what we experience every time we gather for Holy Communion. And so the, the intent of the course is to really walk through step by step and discuss the, the rationale, the spirituality, the scriptures standing behind, the history of this liturgy, which has been prayed in the English church or English-speaking Anglican church for nearly 500 years and really has been based upon in large part uh, uh, a liturgy that was in existence far before that in the Latin um, with you know, various uh, elements uh, that were composed since the Reformation and onwards. Uh, getting an understanding of, of that liturgy in a real in-depth manner will help us in our worship, it is my hope. But it is also my hope that we will understand my concept here of the leaven of liturgy. And that's mostly what we're going to talk about today. What do we mean by that? Next week, we'll really uh, start in on the liturgy itself. But before we get too deep, we shall pray. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who has committed to thy holy church the care and nurture of thy people. Enlighten with thy wisdom those who teach and those who learn, that rejoicing in the knowledge of thy truth, they may worship thee and serve thee from generation to generation, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, the leaven of liturgy. I am not a baker by any stretch of the imagination. But first of all, and understand what I I mean by that, we have to have a, a little talk about leaven. And I fully expect to be corrected on my understanding of leaven here in just a second. But... We'll see if my research has gotten me to the correct place. Leaven. It's, uh, it's referred to in the scriptures from the, almost the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the New Testament. But leaven is an agent that causes dough to aerate, rise, and become lighter when it's baked. In small amounts, it causes a fermentation that affects the entire lump. As I understand it, the fermentation takes place in the sugars... So the sugars become fermented and the aeration, the carbon dioxide that's released, makes that little lump become a giant lump in your fridge the next day. But it's something that when, uh, when leaven is added in small amounts, it has a chemical reaction that affects the entire lump, which serves as a biblical illustration in more than one sense throughout the Old and New Testaments. Leaven is often used as a metaphor in the scriptures, but it's often drawing from its mention in the book of Exodus. Leaven is a little complicated when we talk about it as a scriptural metaphor. I've read a few commentaries this week that wanted it to be very, very simple. I just don't think it's that simple. 
Levin and the Exodus. Many of you all uh, hopefully will recall this story, that the people of God were told to eat in haste as they fled from Egypt. Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. They were forbidden from using leaven, of course, because leaven takes time. You put leaven in, and it's going to take a little bit of time uh, to have its effect, its full effect, before that bread was baked. And so the bread that they were to eat in preparation for that first exodus was unleavened bread. To be commemorated by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, mentioned just a few verses later uh, in chapter 12 of Exodus, verse 18 through 20, the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins the day after Passover. Now there's a lot here to talk about when we consider uh, our Lord having been crucified right near the Feast of the Passover and that the Lord's Supper was instituted near the Passover feast, that Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is a, a more than we can get into today, but first we're going to talk about that leaven. And the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading troughs being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders. Chapter 12, verse 34, in a description of the nature of the Exodus. This is uh, leaving Egypt after the, the uh, plagues uh, in haste before the Pharaoh should change his mind, which he actually did change his mind. Uh, and send armies uh, to follow them. They're leaving and pillaging Egypt as they go. The Egyptians sending with them many items of great value, especially gold. But they took their dough before it was leavened, kneading their, uh, their kneading troughs being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders. And so leaven in the Exodus, uh, there's a principle behind this. The principle is it takes time for leaven to work and we don't have time. We're on our way out the door. To eat luxuriously leavened bread during the commemoration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is to deny the haste of the Exodus, to minimize the danger from which they were saved. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread commemorates the fact that they were in danger and they were saved from that danger by their Lord. Uh, you can see how leaven in this case is kind of, you could say, neutral. Leaven was simply uh, an agent that illustrated the situation that they were in. Some of the commentaries I read this week said, leaven is evil, and yeast is evil, and it's always evil in the scriptures. It's just not true. So <laughs> It's just not true. Sorry. Um, well, you, you can easily uh, discern that from the fact that it was a special thing to not put leaven in the bread, which means most of the time you're using leaven. So it's not, it can't be evil, evil, evil. That's, a, a, to me, a little bit silly. But the negativity about leaven is developed by St. Paul into a New Testament use. You may recall reading about leaven in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And he's really talking, if you read 1 Corinthians, he's chastising the Corinthians especially because he's, he was there for 18 months working with them and teaching them more than any other church. He spent time in Corinth. He leaves Corinth, and a letter comes to him from Corinth saying, it's a mess, it's a disaster, we're involved in all kinds of sin. And he, you can picture him rubbing his temples and saying, okay, 
Let's go back to the leaven, okay? He says, Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? And here we're seeing leaven being used in the sense of sin or something uh, evil. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. And if you are, especially if you're a Jew that's being uh, converted to the Christian faith, and you hear this talk about leaven, purging the old leaven, you are unleavened for Christ our Passover is, oh my goodness, it's ringing bells all over the place because the institution of the unleavened bread happened during the initial Passover, not the commemoration of the Passover, the Passover, the Holy Spirit passing over God's people inflicting wrath upon the Egyptians, but not upon those who's had the, the blood of the Lamb over their door. It's a powerful image. That ye may be, ye are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep <clears throat> the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth." St. Paul is taking something from the Old Testament and injecting into it a new sense. The sense that uh, we have allowed ourselves in Corinth to absorb the pagan culture and try to, uh, to, be, uh, to, to, to reason with ourselves and allow just some paganism and not, uh, all, not, not let it have its effect He's saying, don't you know that the, the way that this works is it's like leaven. And ye are to be unleavened in that sense. Let us keep the feast not with old leaven, the old leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You could take a passage like this and say, see, leaven is referred to in the New Testament and the old as evil. Then Jesus said unto them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Here's an image from the now famous movie, The Passion of the Christ. Beware of that leaven because it begins in you and then in time it has its effect. Uh, what is the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Well, especially the Pharisees. If, if you're told time and time again that you're the smartest person in the room, you start to believe it. <laughs> and that idea, ooh, it sinks in good. And then you walk into a room where you're the dumbest person in the room, and you still feel like somehow I am still the smartest person in this room. And there winds up to be all kinds of different conflicts and, and difficulties. The, the idea that you are the holy person, it doesn't matter whether you are holy or not. You are holy. That's a leaven that Jesus is saying, well, hang on a second. Beware of that leaven. It tends to spread. And St. Paul again. Ye did run well, speaking chastising the Galatians. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Here we are again. With this idea of just a little idea leavening the whole lump. But it's not all bad. This is my point, okay? This is my point. Just after the parable of the mustard seed, Luke chapter 13, you remember the parable of the mustard seed where something very small, the smallest of the seeds, likened to faith, 
nevertheless grows into one of the greatest of the plants and the birds are able to make their nest in, in, that, in that, uh, the fruition of that small seed. He likens that to faith. He says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The very next thing he says is the kingdom of God, or where, whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. And some commentators will say, yeah, it means evil. Okay, I don't think so. Okay, context. You have to go far away for context to get that evil uh, idea. What's right here is Jesus' point that something small can have an effect on the whole. And even something as small as a mustard seed, something as small as a true, earnest faith, as small as it is. He said it's a lot like leaven, actually. It has its effect over uh, the whole lump until the whole lump is leaven. And so we're getting there. Don't worry. We're getting there to the leaven of liturgy. But we first of all are just going to continue to consider leaven for a moment. Leaven, Leaven, whether it's used in a positive light or a negative light, is consistently referred to for its effect of spreading from the part to the whole. Unleavened bread in the Passover context represents faith, readiness of the gospel. But the effect of leaven is also like the kingdom of God. We've got something uh, now, uh, uh, one of the church fathers, I believe it was John Cassian, when he was speaking about the, the manner in which we encounter life, we oftentimes mislabel good and evil. And he says you need to think about it in a, in a different sense than, than the typical manner in which we we oftentimes even pray. Good is anything that brings you closer to God. Evil is anything that brings you away from him. When you pray to win the lottery and the Lord answers your prayer and you win the lottery, there is a good chance that you will be pulled further away from God by all the confusion that's injected into your life from that good thing that happened. And once in a while, a shocking diagnosis will, will re- recall to you your mortality and cause you to shake from your life things that are ephemeral, that have been consuming you, drop them and focus on what's important. And that drew you closer to God. Now we say the one of them is evil, the other one is good. Well, it depends, doesn't it? It depends. Um, it, can go, it can go a couple of different ways. He, what he would say is that a lot of the things that happen in our lives are not actually good or evil. They're neutral. And they are used for good or evil in our lives depending on how we handle it with our walk with the Lord. I'm going to say that leaven is the same idea. That leaven <clears throat> in the scriptures can go one way or the other. And so the leaven of liturgy. We have to consider liturgy, the, the, the textbook definition for liturgy or the etymology of the word liturgy is the work of the people or public work. OK, this when we come to church, you don't feel like you're going to work today, I hope, even though I did hear of a church recently that canceled services because of Labor Day. <laughs> oh, it made my head hurt. 
it shows you how you think about church. If, you know, well, Labor Day is a holiday, you get the day off. So when it's Labor Day weekend, you cancel church, which means that church to you is like work work, like bad work. Well, I mean, I should say, you know what I'm saying. Nevertheless, when we gather together, it's not uh, for us to get popcorn and sit back and enjoy the show. This is not enjoying the show. You're participating in this. In fact, we're all working at this together. And when I turn to the altar and I pray, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, I'm praying on your behalf. We're all praying that together. But we don't just pray the entire liturgy together, otherwise it would be a cacophony. And, uh, so I'm praying on your behalf as your priest. And when I turn to you, I'm speaking on the Lord's behalf to you. But most of the time, I'm turned the other way. We're all praying this together. We're all working at this together. We're all glorifying God and praising Him and participating in Him together. So liturgy, the work of the people, is like leaven in several ways. First of all, think about it. The words that we pray each week are the same words, roughly speaking, the same words. And there are not too many. There's few. There's a few words in there, but those words are, what I would say, in the English language, the best words that you could say on this day at this time with this group of people gathered. It's the best thing you could put into that lump of dough. Uh, We don't change them every week. We don't change them every century even. Uh, These are great words. They're injected into our lives on that Sunday morning or any time we gather together for Holy Communion. But the amount of time that liturgy takes up in the week is very small. It's this little small time in the week. If you come to the 830 service, it's one hour. You think about that significantly as Jesus uh, complains to his disciples that they couldn't pray with him for one hour. They fell asleep. Uh, so the 11, 11.30 or 11 uh, o'clock service is 1.5 hours. So if you stay awake for the whole thing, just think how happy the Lord will be. Uh, but what I mean is when you consider your entire week, if you're still working full time, that's 40 hours a week. You're working at whatever your job is. You spend more time, definitely more time watching TV Definitely more time on your phone. Definitely more time searching the internet for something or shopping for things or driving places. Far more time than you spend in this room for 1.5 hours or one hour. But the effect of that little piece of leaven is meant to spread through the whole lump, the whole week, the whole life. That sacrament that's injected into your life is meant to be like leaven the effect of that word, that work, that time is pervasive and powerful unless your heart has become so hardened that it doesn't matter what words are said, what prayers are said, everything bounces off. I'm praying better things for myself and for you all. We're praying that this leaven actually has its effect. Um, But leaven can go either way, right? (laughs) So the liturgy for Holy Communion is a microcosmic expression of the entire Christian faith. You think about it, we, 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 uh, at the very beginning, you know, this is a microcosm of the whole class, at the very beginning, we acknowledge uh, that the Lord already knows all of our secrets. 
he already knows all of your thoughts. So whatever you're planning to hide from him today, I don't know why you're doing that. <laughs> all hearts are open. All desires are known. You know, the very next thing we do is recount the law, either the Ten Commandments or the summary of the law. And boy, if it isn't uh, quiet in the room after that. The next thing is, Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Um, we, we move through the liturgy. I won't go through the whole thing right now. But we move through the entire litur- liturgy, and it's the rationale. And in microcosm, in a very small form, it's the entire Christian life right there. Uh, it ends with depart in peace to love and serve the Lord. You entered with... Almighty God, and to all, all hearts are open, all desires known, you left like this, or you came in like this, and you left to part in peace, to love and serve the Lord, encouraged and ready to go. Uh, the leavening effect is to be expected in your liturgy, and therefore it's all important that the liturgy be good, exceptionally good. The words have to be great. They have to express precisely what we mean. They have to pray exactly what we mean and what we believe. Christian liturgy, uh, there is no extant liturgy that you can really turn to per se. There is a, a first century document, but it's more like a book of rubrics than it is the actual liturgy. Uh, there are witnesses to early Christian liturgy. The New Testament itself uh, you know, the disciples ask the Lord, uh, when we pray, how shall we pray? And he gives them a liturgical prayer. He says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven. We've been saying that prayer in every language of the world ever since. And we'll say it in about 40 minutes. That's a liturgical prayer, an early witness to liturgy of the early church. John 17, if you're familiar with that chapter, it has been long thought to be a portion of liturgy that was, that was uh, used in churches where St. John uh, was the, the, the chief apostle. Philippians chapter 2, the kenosis passage, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Uh, that whole passage is also thought to have been something that was repeated in churches over and over again. One of the best passages in the scripture. Colossians 1, 15, uh, following, etc. A lot of those passages are thought to be liturgical prayers. Pliny the Younger was a spy from the Roman government who was sent to find out whether the Christians of the first century were uh, really plotting the demise of the Roman Empire. And what he did was he came back with a report on what the Christians do. He says they gather together, they sing hymns, they recite psalms, and they pray to Jesus as if he were a God. And they, and they vow to each other to live righteous lives. And he comes back and reports that the Christians aren't a threat to the Roman Empire. It was thought that they were cannibals and that they were plotting the demise of the emperor. It was none of that. But that was one of the first... Uh, looks into the early church. Justin Martyr in the second century, also when he was writing an apology for the Christian church, was able to report some of what goes on in Christian churches uh, in an effort to get the Romans to stop persecuting the church. 
So that some of these early witnesses to what uh, the first few centuries of Christian liturgy, you can read about, um, and you'll find several things that line up with what we still do on Sunday mornings. But it was the fourth century when uh, liturgy really started to crystallize because after Constantine, the Christian faith became both legal and then by the end of the fourth century, they were trying to make it mandatory, which is not a good idea for the Christian faith. Nevertheless, you would start to see the liturgies were starting to crystallize. They were starting to agree. Think about the first ecumenical council when they're trying to defeat Arianism and they uh, emerged from the first ecumenical council with the Nicene Creed, which ends with the little word, Amen, which is an idea that what we're doing here in this creed is we're praying back the truth to God that's been revealed to us. Who's heard this phrase, Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi? You know that one? Very good. We've got a few. And some are hiding their hands. I know you've heard this one. Uh, Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi was said by Prosper of Aquitaine in the uh, 5th century. He said, let us consider the sacraments of priestly prayers which have been handed down by the apostles, are celebrated uniformly throughout the whole world and in every Catholic church, so that the law of praying might establish the law of believing. What we pray is what we believe. That's been a hallmark of the church since the beginning. And it was stated explicitly in the 5th century by uh, St. Prosper of Aquitaine. That idea that you can't just... Uh, reportedly, C.S. Lewis was asked, Why, how can you stand going to church where they pray the same thing every week? He says, because I believe the same thing every week. That's because we pray... What we believe, and it's no mystery. That's why there's no popcorn. You're going to come in, and you're going to work with us. We're all going to recite again what it is we believe, because the law of prayer is the law of belief, and liturgy is like leaven. The effect of bad liturgy should be expected to spread in the same way. All right, you enter into a church where they no longer say the Nicene Creed. That portion of the leaven has been taken out. You should expect that within a generation, these people will not understand the basic Christian faith because it's not said anymore. When the pastor gets up and he speaks many uh, good and wonderful things that fit in a group therapy session, how to get along with your boss, how to have a a more happy relationship, how to lower your levels of anxiety, how to get out of debt, how to, you know, all these wonderful things are helpful for your life, but aren't the Christian faith? You can expect that within a generation, these people won't have a clue what the Christian faith is. Because that liturgy has been watered down and the leaven has had its effect. If you start uh, with a liturgy that sounds more like uh, charity begins at home. And everyone says, what verse is that? It's not a verse. It's not in the Bible. And everybody says, you know, God helps those who help themselves. What chapter is that? It's not in there. Um, You should be replacing words from your vocabulary like that with words like, Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Or 
Almighty God, into whom all hearts are open, all desires known, from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts. Words like those, words like glory be to God on high and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. Words like those should work like leaven in your life. Uh, Why is it that churches will split over the change in liturgy? Because the change in liturgy is a change in the belief of the church. You can't just change the liturgy and not expect the leaven to affect the whole lump. It may not be right away, but it'll, it'll happen. It'll happen perhaps a generation later. So when we understand our own liturgy, the 1928 American Book of Common Prayer, Order for Holy Communion, is, in my opinion, and hopefully of yours too, one of the finest liturgies in the English language. I don't say it's the finest, I don't say it's the only, but I'd say it's pretty good. Okay, For English language, it's pretty good. In this course, we will examine it point by point, start to finish, commenting on history, rationale, theology, revisions, scriptural basis, practical implications, beginning uh, with page 67 and working on through to the exhortations, uh, page 84, including rubrics helping us to understand why our liturgy is the way it is, and even um, understanding the interaction between the Book of Common Prayer and the various missals, which have also had elements injected into our service. Uh, Why are those there? Why, uh, why do we do this? Are, are, we, are we still following Lex Arani, Lex Gudendi? Uh, can we really trust these bishops and clergy uh, to guide us? Well, I hope so. Um, you've all trusted me, so, that's, <laughs> so it's your fault. No, <clears throat> no as we're studying uh, our liturgy, really what should be taught in the end, is the entire Christian faith from beginning to end. And the idea is, hopefully, that those portions of this liturgy that have been lost on you, or you've never understood this, I don't know why we say these words, or why does this come before that, or why doesn't this come after this, or why don't we do fill-in-the-blank in our church, etc. Um, these, are, these are questions that hopefully will be answered in the course of our of our course of our course, the leaven of liturgy. Now, we have time for questions or comments or or anticipations or anything you have to say. Have have any thoughts about about where we're going with this or any questions? Mr. Joe, yes. Okay. We keep, and we keep every week putting that leaven back in. Yep. Now, you know, here's, here's something interesting. Yeah, the idea of, of the church is like a, a bakery or something like that. Um, I, I don't think that's a bad idea. It's um, all the thought just left me. Oh, shoot. I'm getting older. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, the idea of, of, of us continually... Oh, this is what the idea was. Um, some people would think that it would be, since, since the sacrament is so important, since the liturgy is so good, perhaps we should just stay in church all week long. Why don't we just all stay here? 
you know, where there's plenty of nourishment and, and uh, uh, you know, and plenty of clergy would like to just stay at the altar at all times and never go anywhere else because this is where, this is where, you know, the Lord is present. Except that at the end of every liturgy, there's this little element about depart in peace to love and serve the Lord somewhere else. Wherever else you're going, go there and love and serve the Lord there. And in one week, at the same time, we'll come back and we'll put more leaven into you. And you'll go out there and hopefully, you know, we may be pressing a metaphor too far, but you'll go out there and be able to feed others because you're nourished yourself. You'll come back. Why is it important to go to church? Well, my my mother says I should go to church. Uh, Okay. Yes, your mother says you should go to church. Your father does too. But... The notion is you're being fed, you're being leavened yourself, and you uh, therefore can go out and, and love and serve the Lord um, in uh, spirit and in truth. And then you return to be fed again. So, um, yeah, the idea of, of us going out and being able to be, you know, the, the metaphors get mixed, but it's salt and light in the world. And... Uh, and, and basically, we can point people to where the nourishment is because that's where we're nourished. Um, but no, you, you can't hang out here all week. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yes, Jack. When William the Conqueror of uh, Battle Hastings, 1066, conquered the Saxons, pretty soon thereafter, he established a cathedral at this sort of defensible hill which was called Old Sarah, uh-huh. S-A-R-E-Y. <clears throat> That's morphed into a much bigger cathedral now, Salisbury. Salisbury, So yeah. there was some injection, injection into the English liturgy of Old Sarah. This liturgy? Oh, definitely, yeah. Most of what the, uh, you know, we point to 1928, but it's only the latest iteration of the English Book of Common Prayer. Uh, you know, you really should, ought to start with the 1549, but in the 1549, when Thomas Cranmer was putting the Book of Common Prayer together, most of what uh, he was drawing from was the Sarum Mass, the, the liturgy from Salisbury, uh, just essentially translating it to the common tongue. Now, he took from, from several other places, but I think if you could put a percentage on it, it was something like 60 or 70% was from the Sarum, which is old Latin, basically. And now uh, you'll find that in our collects, and in the uh, propers or the epistle and gospel selections that we read, these are from the ancient church. Uh, some of those prayers are from Gregorian sacramentaries from the uh, 7th century, and some are from the Leonine, which is more like the 5th century. And, and uh, some of the interactions that we, that we use, the Lord be with you and with thy spirit, let us pray. The first reference to those is more like 3rd, 4th century, which means it had been used already a long time before then. And if you want to go back in history, I mean, the Lord's Prayer itself is right out of the New Testament. So, so the history spans quite a, quite a space, but the Sarum Mass is definitely what, what most of uh, what, we, what we use today is from. It's been through a lot of uh, changes. Of course, here we are in the United States of America, 
uh, and we don't pray for the queen anymore. Although we'll pray for the queen today. We'll pray for the peaceful repose of Queen Elizabeth II. But we typically in our offices pray for the president, the governor of this state. But things like that, those, those changes came about when the Book of Common Prayer was essentially translated to Americanism. Um, we, we first got our Book of Common Prayer in this country. But any other comments or, or questions? Um, uh, first for, for Jane. My, my question is, uh, will you explain sometimes, well, when you are there, you will Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we're going to go point by point. And as soon as we get to that place... Where you just shoot your hand up. I'll probably explain it anyway. But shoot your hand up and say, why do you do that thing? That's the point of all this, actually. Is the, the service that we have is so loaded with movements and words and interactions. There's no way you could get it on your first try. And actually, some people are here for a decade and they still don't get, why does it we do this and not do that? Um, the, the refreshing thing is 96% of the time there's a great reason Every once in a while, you know, why don't you wear your chasuble at the beginning of the service? It's hot. <laughs> That's the reason. Sorry. <laughs> and there's, there's another reason. But anyway, I saw another hand uh, over here. Leah. So back to what you were saying, wanting to stay in the building in the service of the altar all the time. Right, yeah. Have you, have you studied sourdough? Sourdough is part of my leaven study this week, but I, I didn't mention sourdough, but go for it. Yeah. And a dough, and it rests and grows. Right. And you use a little bit of it, and then you have to add ingredients. Right. So you never add any more love in it, you just add more nourishment. Right. So that's a very interesting. And a lot of. A lot of uh, I see. I didn't want to get into the baking thing because I don't quite get baking. <laughs> but sourdough, sourdough is part of it. I thought as soon as I mentioned sourdough, someone's going to say, "Sourdough doesn't work like that," and I'll say, "Oh, sorry." But anyway, yeah, that, that idea, and that, that was part of the argument of some commentators that say, no, leaven is always bad uh, because it was sourdough. It made things sour or something like that. But it's actually better for you. It's better for you. Thank you very much, yes. But there's, there's something in that, uh, that leaven imagery, whether it's sourdough or yeast or whatever agent is used, that is powerful enough that it's used from the book of Leviticus or Exodus to Leviticus all the way through to the New Testament and Jesus himself is using it as a parable describing the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like leaven. So my attempt is to try and uh, to, to put this into our study of the liturgy and also point out that I believe it's a neutral thing, leaven, which means if you put uh, uh, heresy into your leaven. You will have heresy for decades and centuries of, of heresy. So you have got to make the liturgy orthodox. It has to be. Um, otherwise, you're going to have uh, problems. I think that's all, all the time we have today. Do we have another question? Anybody? Oh, uh, yes, please, Frank. Can you touch, touch, uh, maybe touch a Yeah, we'll we'll do a, a a brief history. We could go on and on about it, but we'll start. We'll do a little brief history of the fifteen forty nine, fifteen fifty two, fifteen fifty nine, and all the all the different prayer books and how we got to the nineteen twenty eight. 
you could really go on and on because you've got queens and kings and kingdoms and, and new, new worlds, and I can't do all that. But we'll, we'll give a little, a little rundown. Yep. Okay? All right. Thank you.